What's up, everyone? This is episode 236 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my ex account is at Wax Museum PC. All right, well, you made it through another crazy week in the hobby. As you guys probably know, there's a lot going on right now. I was dealing with storm stuff this past week, and and I'm late to the party at this point, so I'm not going to sit here and recap all the news that everyone else has already covered, but I've still got a full show for you today. Nonetheless, I've still spent plenty of time with cards this past week, and I know a lot of you are still seeking out card shows on a regular basis, myself included, so I want to start today with a segment that talks about optimizing that experience. And then after that, I've got a few pieces of mail I'm going to talk about. And then for today's main segment, you've all heard the expression, saving something for a rainy day. Well, I've been meaning to update my favorite 50 cards list from a year ago, but that's a pretty big task. So it's an idea I've had stored away for a rainy day. Well, like I mentioned the storm earlier, thanks to the tropical storm, last Wednesday was probably the rainiest of days I'll see in a long time. So I was here at the house, I was stuck at the house, I spent the larger part of the afternoon updating that list. And I did this last time, but in today's main segment, I want to talk a little bit about the exercise in general. I want to describe how I worked through it, I want to give you a breakdown of what kind of cards ended up on the list, and then I want to offer up a few reflections now that the process is finished. So you'll want to make sure to stay tuned for that. Okay, first up, I hit up a card show this past weekend. Let's go ahead and start with that. If you want a more specific recap, you can check my YouTube channel, but I thought it would be a worthwhile activity to talk a little about my approach at local shows and give you five tips that I think will help you to optimize your card show experience. Now, with that being said, keep in mind that no two shows are exactly alike. This is just a general guide, and you might have to adapt one or two of these tips if you're headed to a big show like uh, the National, for instance. And that's especially true for tip number one, which comes into play the moment you walk into the door. Figure out what method you're going to use to walk the show floor. Now, the majority of the shows that I go to in the Central Florida area here are in probably the 80 to 100 table range, and the layout's a big rectangle. You have tables all around the perimeter, and then you might have maybe six sections of table on on the inside. And if I just start walking to random tables, it's going to be hard for me to remember what I've seen and what I haven't. Um, And, you know, that's easy to do. Sometimes you get distracted. My solution to that to keep me on task is pretty simple. I make one lap around the perimeter, and then I hit the remaining six sections one at a time from one side of the room to the other. And this can still work if you're at a bigger show, say um, Dallas, for instance. You can still walk the perimeter of the room and then hit the sections on the inside, or you might get there and decide you want to break it up a different way. No matter what you choose, find a way that ensures you see every table that you want before you head back out those doors. And that leads us into tip number two. Make sure to budget enough time to take in the full experience. And the key part there is the phrase, the full experience. If you're just trying to get a quick look at every showcase, you can zip around the show as fast as your legs will take you. But if you want to stop and look through every box and engage with dealers and look up comps and even engage with other collectors, you're going to have to give yourself some time. 
If you're going to an 80 to 100 table show, you probably want to set aside at least two hours. To be on the safe side, you might want to allow for even more. Now, you might not even spend that long there. Maybe you're only there for an hour. But whenever you start to rush yourself, you miss out on opportunities, or in some cases, you might even make rash decisions. You want enough time to make the decisions in an orderly manner um, and responsible manner um, according to whatever you know your budget is and, and whatever your needs are. Um, and I understand that everyone is busy. So some people with small kids or people with large families might not be able to spend that much time at a show. That's fine. I still encourage you to go and do what you can. Find a way to enjoy the hobby with whatever amount of time you have at your disposal. Okay, now one thing I mentioned in that last part bears repeating, and it's actually tip number three. Make sure to engage with dealers. There's absolutely no way that you'll be able to optimize your experience without some sort of interaction with the dealers. And chances are most cards at a card show aren't going to have the price marked on them. I wish they did. That would make things a lot easier for me. Uh, if they do have prices on them, you know, they might be a little bit high. They might be a starting point. And they're priced that way with the expectation that the buyer is going to try and talk the seller down a little bit. So expect to make offers on cards, whether they're priced or not. If you're wanting to purchase multiple cards, I would also suggest trying to bundle them together to get a little bit cheaper of a price. Uh, in a lot of cases, the more you buy, the more a seller is willing to work with you on price. But at the same time, you have to be realistic. Don't try to spend a bunch of time trying to verbally devalue a card that you're wanting to buy. That doesn't make, uh, doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? You're saying, well, it's got this scratch here and got that there and that there. At some point, the, the dealer's just going to say, well, do you really want this card, right? Or don't spend all day devaluing the price of the experience. For example, I've heard buyers trying to tell dealers that, you know what, hey, you're the dealer, you're saving eBay fees, so you should sell me these for cheaper. Well, this completely ignores the fact that the dealer has had to pay for the table, probably a couple of meals. If they're traveling, you know, you've got travel expenses, either a flight or you've got gas money, um, a hotel room, all of that just to be able to set up at the show. So long story short, know that there are costs on both sides. It's also to your benefit to listen to how the dealer interacts with other customers at, that were at the table before you. And that won't always happen. You won't always have someone there in front of you. But if you do, you know, you can look through the boxes and kind of listen at the same time. For instance, about a month ago, I watched a buyer try to go back and forth with a seller who already had fair prices on his stuff. And the seller stopped him and basically said, look, I'm at 75% of these comps. So then I was up next. I had three cards in my hand that I would have happily paid full sticker price on. But because of what I had just heard, I offered him 75% and he instantly accepted. Um, it was a very, very easy transaction. I knew that was probably a safe figure to go with because of what, a, you know, what I had just heard, because of what just went down. Um, you know, but how do you know what's actually a fair price, right? We're talking about, you know, I knew the stickers were fair. Well, that leads us to tip number four. Have some familiarity with comps especially if there is a predetermined list of cards that you're hunting for. Let's say there are 10 cards that you're really wanting, right? Or maybe even less than that, maybe five. It'd be a lot easier if it's just five. You should know what to expect to pay for those before you walk in the door, especially if they're liquid and hit the marketplace often. For everything else, you need to know how to use the tools you have access to. You know, probably four or five years ago, 
Uh, I would say it was frowned on to stand at someone's table and look up comps on your phone. You know, that seems kind of crazy now, but that really was, you know, at least in, in the local area here where I'm at, that was a common thing. So a lot has changed and it's pretty normal now. Everyone does it now. So the obvious places to look would be completed eBay listings and 130point.com. Those are both free. Of course, you've also got the other big auction houses too, if it's a bigger card. And then if you want a one-stop shop for a lot of that info, you might try an app like um, the Card Ladder app. I know there are some other ones out there as well. I haven't used the other ones. But my suggestion, even if you're using an app that kind of aggregates all of that data, don't just rely on one source. You should also look for a range of prices. And I'll see people, you know, they might try and pull comps from damaged cards or off-centered cards, you know, or cards where there's some sort of issue and leverage those against a card that's in much better condition. Dealers will obviously see through that. They know their inventory. So be honest with dealers and be reasonable. Most people will work with you. And then if they won't, that's probably a sign that you should move on. All right. Now let's say they do work with you and you're able to work out a deal, which is, you know, a great feeling. That brings us to tip number five, which is very simple. Cash is king, right? Most dealers will accept multiple methods of payment. I've seen, you know, PayPal is very common at shows next to cash. Um, people do ask about Venmo, and then I've also heard Cash App. I've never heard anyone turn down cold hard cash, though. And you have to determine how much you're comfortable carrying with you. Some shows will have ATMs in the lobby if it's at like a hotel or a venue, uh, but you can't count on it. You need to have something ready to pay with. And very rarely will I see someone that's ready to swipe a credit card. I would not count on that at all. I still occasionally see people ask about that at a show. That's not common at all. Now, with that being said, you know, you might be thinking, well, what if I bring my own cards? And I haven't even touched on trading yet, but some dealers are receptive to it. A lot of people will bring their case of cards with them. If you do, you should plan to have stuff comped ahead of time. That speeds the process up quite a bit. And then if you are looking at trading into another card, be prepared to give up more in value. Now, I won't get too much into the trading aspect. That's a conversation for another video. Um, just know, though, that that's an option. But at the end of the day, cash is still king, and it's a lot easier to deal with cash. All right, well, there you have it. Um, I hope that was of some value to you, no matter your level of card show experience. Real quick, just to summarize, the five tips that I presented to you today are as follows. Number one, map out the show floor. Number two, make sure to budget enough time. Number three, engage with dealers. Number four, know your comps. And then number five, cash is king. Okay, on to the mail. And I think I got maybe four packages this week, although the first three are related. So I'm going to go ahead and go through those here real quick. The first card that I received was a Lamar Odom 2000-2001 Topps Heritage Retrofractor numbered to 272. And I guess ever since I did that episode on 2000 Topps Heritage, I've been thinking about those retrofractors. And, you know, I didn't want to collect them originally because I guess it bothered me that they're called retrofractors, but they don't refract, right? It's still just kind of a basic chromium card. And then also Reggie Miller wasn't in it. So as a team collector, and no Pacers were in it, as a team collector, there wasn't much incentive for me to buy those. But I finally decided, you know what? I really like that retro set. This is kind of the upgrade over that. It's it's something to chase. So I went out and I got this Lamar Odom because there were a few of those out there. 
And then I got to hunting a little bit more because I've got a Kevin Garnett. I've got a Jason Williams. I've found a shack in a 99 cent lot. So it's like, okay, let me see what else I can find out there. Of all places, I I found one on Amazon that I got in this week as well. I found an Eddie Jones, uh, also numbered to 272 as as the veterans were in this set. And um, then things kind of kept going from there. A, A Tim Duncan popped up with a very reasonable buy it now. And I've been following these for a few weeks, and I just don't feel like they show up often. So to be able to knock out a few was nice. I'm not in a big hurry on this set. So I am going to try and take it slow. And and I know I've always told myself in the past, or I've always told other people more so, hey, I'm not a set collector. Well, I guess that's not really true. I've said that because I don't aggressively seek things out and I don't try and knock these sets out as quick as I can. But, you know, I did a nine-year 1972 signed top set chase. I'm doing a, a couple of patch sets that, you know, maybe I'll never finish them, but you know, thinking about it, I, I guess I am a set collector. So this is is my uh, admission of that fact. And I picked up three retrofractors this week, and I'm very happy about that. Now, the second package that I want to talk about, although it's really the fourth package, is a lot of 39 Basketball Hall of Fame signed index cards that I got for $130. So I'm not a math person by any means, but if you crunch the numbers there, that's like $3.33 a piece. And um, I don't collect a lot of index cards, but they are useful if you want to make cut signatures or if you just want cheap signatures of Hall of Famers in general. And I'm looking at the people in this lot, and there were names like Elgin Baylor and Jerry West, and I think Willis Reed was in there. And, it, you know, the names just keep going. And there were some people that I didn't know as well. But I just figured, you know what, I could probably do a lot with this, especially for $3.33 a card. There's so many. Um, so many possibilities, right? If I make custom cards or if I move some of the more popular cards and keep the obscure people, I thought that would be kind of fun because some of these Hall of Famers died in the late 90s. And and I'll be honest, I don't know a lot about them. So another thing that buying lots does in general is, you know, whenever I buy a lot, there's bound to be stuff in there that I don't know about or people that I don't know about. And that gives me an excuse to look them up. And it, it lets me, you know, takes me down other rabbit holes and I just really enjoy that. So that's what this lot did. I thought that was a pretty good purchase. I haven't showed it off on social media yet, but eventually there'll be a video of that unboxing on my YouTube. Probably not for another week, but just keep an eye out for that if you are interested in seeing it. All right, before I move into today's final segment, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by ComC.com, your home for buying, selling, and flipping all the hottest trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 33 million cards, from basketball's biggest stars like LeBron James and Kevin Durant, to Marvel favorites like Spider-Man, Thor, and Captain America. ComC has something for every type of collector. Visit ComC.com today to build your collection with your favorite cards. Additionally, some of you have asked me for ways you can help support this show. The easiest way is my eBay affiliate link, and using that link costs you absolutely nothing just an extra 30 seconds or so of your time, but it helps support the show. To access this link, simply go to waxmuseumpodcast.com, click the eBay logo, shop as planned, so whatever you are going to buy anyway, just click my link first, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. 
Hey, this is Bob Nettleke, former Indiana Pacer. Played on a few championship teams, had a lot of fun. You know, I'm listening to the Wax Museum podcast, one of the best there is. Okay, so a lot of you might remember a project I started last September where I made a list of my 50 favorite cards. It wasn't necessarily my 50 most valuable cards, just the ones I liked the most. When everything was finished, I discussed the creation of that list on this show. That was back on episode 187. And seeing as it's a slow time in the basketball world right now, and a lot of the delayed new releases don't interest me much, I figured now would be a good time to redo that list. Now, creating that original list from scratch was not an easy process. In fact, after everything was finalized and I was shooting the videos for social media, I had second thoughts about a lot of the cards between spots, I don't know, 15 and 50. Like, why was assigned 57 tops Earl Lloyd card number 45? It probably should have been a lot higher, but then if I move that up, what all gets moved back as a result? And at some point, you just have to finalize things and let them be. They can always be changed the second time around. Anyway, I wrapped up this original list around November or December, and from there I moved on to my 2023 goals. And seeing as that list was still fresh on my mind, one of those goals included add two cards that are worthy of being in my top 50. And two seems kind of low to me now, but my thinking at the time was that I wanted to keep things realistic, so I wasn't putting a bunch of pressure on myself to make a bunch of purchases just because. So throughout the year, as I landed cards that I thought had a chance to wind up on the next list, I added them under the previous list on my Excel spreadsheet. And I have to say, the start of the year was very good to me, much better than I anticipated. I think that list had you know, already reached seven or eight cards by April, and then it doubled by the time I officially started working on this new list, which prompted me to question, how did that happen? You know, how did so many cards end up uh, in contention for this new list, right? So while I spent a lot of time and effort finding cards, I don't feel like I ratcheted that up any from previous years. So I guess a lot of it was just timing and luck. We all know that, you know, the market's a little bit different now. And I had some money put aside. I was ready to upgrade parts of my collection should those cards pop up at the right time. I think it helped that there was an influx in marketplaces and probably not enough buyers to support that, which if you're one of those buyers, that puts you in a pretty good spot. On top of that, I believe that my network has continued to grow. And a lot of that is thanks to you guys. And then, like I said, in some cases, I just got lucky, such as the Reggie Miller leather card I talked about a couple weeks ago. The stars lined up for that acquisition and it ended up being a top 10 card. There were a couple of new additions to this list, though, that were not new additions to my collection. The first was a Paul George Statline booklet from 2015 Panini Preferred. And as I was making my top 10 Paul George lists this summer, I realized how many qualities that card had that I miss in the card world today. It's game dated to his career high, mind you. It has a picture from that game. It has an acetate surface. It has a nice write-up. And it has a really nice patch. So not only did that one make the list this time around, it jumped all the way up to spot number 31. The second card that I added that I already owned was a 1969-1970 Topps rookie of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which, you know, of course, it's, it's Lou Alcindor on the card, but it's Kareem's rookie. And it's in an SGC1 slab. It's a really beat-up copy. Uh, it's one that I bought raw right at the start of the pandemic 
And it was one of my earliest SGC grading submissions. I knew it wouldn't grade well, but I just wanted it, um, you know, in that slab so it would be protected. I think the vintage cards present very well in those slabs. So that card for me is a sort of time capsule for that time in the hobby, which seems like so long ago when, you know, it really wasn't. And then now that I got a chance to get a picture with Kareem at the National, I look at the Kareem stuff I have differently. I feel a little bit more of a connection to it now. So that Kareem rookie ultimately snuck onto the list at number 50. So yeah, it's the last card, but you know, it's there. It made it. Okay, so once I had the list of the previous 50 and then the 14 or 15 potential additions, I printed them out so I can make notes on them a little easier. I'm a pen and paper kind of guy. And before I started making any adjustments to the rankings, I knew I could kind of eyeball things and narrow that 65 down to 50. Once again, I had to wrestle with this weird feeling that certain cards should be on the list, even if they didn't feel like favorites, be it because of value, like, hey, you know, this card is worth X amount, I should value it, you know, it should be my one of my top five favorite cards. Well, that's not always the case. So, you know, maybe it was value or hobby reputation, right? The hobby says this is a an amazing card, I should think so as well. Or in some cases, there were cards that people gifted to me. And while those components might factor in some to cards being included on the list, I didn't want to feel obligated to put certain cards on there because of that. So I had to resist that urge. And then I also, once again, had to come to grips with the fact that excluding a card from the list wasn't an indictment on the card itself. You know, I've been collecting for a long time, and 50 cards is a very small percentage of my PC. So just because a card doesn't make the list doesn't mean it's not important to me, or it doesn't mean that I don't like it. Some cards, though, were easy to mark off because I was more or less upgrading them. For example, I really like my 2006 Topps Chrome Gold of Danny Granger, but I would say my PSA 10 2012 Gold Prism is probably better. Similarly, my Glenn Robinson III Hickory Laundry Tag 101 was swapped out for the exact same card, of Paul George, which is funny because when I made the video for Glenn Robinson, I'm pretty sure I said something to the effect of, I don't think I'll ever land one of the better players in this set like Miles Turner or Paul George. Well, never say never, so it was pretty easy to omit those cards from this new list. Other cards like a Jeff Foster 101 and a John Havlicek shoe card that were in spots 22 and 25, even though they were ranked in the top half the first time around, I'm just not feeling those in my top 50 right now. I still really like them, I don't have any intentions of getting rid of them, but it feels like it's time to move them off the list for right now, and sometimes you just go with your gut. I really don't have a a good explanation beyond that. Sometimes that's all you need. The rest of the cards that got cut were from spots 35 through 50. I think there were um, maybe 11 or 12 of them, so that made me feel pretty good about my initial list, because if I did it right, it only makes sense that the cards towards the end would be the first ones on the chopping block. And then the last handful to survive the cut would end up being 45 through 50, which is not exactly what happened. Like I said earlier, that Kareem rookie snuck in at number 50. But otherwise, that was more or less my approach. Making that first list from scratch was really tough. And this time around, I already had that foundation to build off of, so I might as well use it. Now, as I was figuring out which cards would and wouldn't make the cut, There were probably 12 or so that I knew would stick around but would drop, so I gave them little down arrows like you'd find in the old Beckett magazines. That way I knew for sure later on, 
My plan was to do the same with the cards that were moving up. They were going to get little up arrows. But the only one that ended up with one of those was the 57 Earl Lloyd I mentioned earlier. And even then, I wanted to be careful not to overcompensate for his poor placement the last time around. I think he ended up this time at number 26. So that's still a pretty significant jump from 45, but one that I think the card deserves. Now, I'm not going to name every card on that list. I don't think that works very well on the audio podcast. I'll put something like that out on my YouTube or probably social media to correspond with this episode release. But I do want to talk about the placement of cards in general. The first time I did this, I felt pretty good about my top 15 or, you know, top 10 or top 15. Those were my non-negotiables. And for the most part, they stayed the same here. I added the Reggie Miller scripted swatches card I picked up recently. That became my number two card and subsequently bumped a Ron Artest logo man and everything else went down a spot. Um, I swapped an Artest nameplate letter from the top five. I had the letter T, one of the letter T's I should say. This year I acquired the letter A and that one feels like the better of the two because it's the first letter of the last name and those usually carry a little bit of a premium with patch collectors. Then I added the Reggie Miller Finals leather card at number 10 and the Paul George 101 Hickory Laundry tag at number 13. So the only reason something moved out of my top 15 was because it got bumped by one of those three cards. None of the top 15 left this list entirely. Some of them just moved down a few spots. The last time I did this, I talked about how the first 15 or 20 and the last five are pretty easy. It's everything in between that's tough to fill in. I found that to be the case again. I did the best I could to rank those, but honestly, they're all somewhat interchangeable. You could take card number 25 and card number 35, and they're pretty close in importance to me. I did notice that, you know, as I was filling in those middle spots, I was alternating some between pacers and non-pacers. I don't know, you know, if there was... Uh, subconsciously, that's just something I was doing because I felt like I was grouping too many cards together. I don't know if that helped or hurt any one particular card's ranking, but it was happening. So I just want to, you know, let that be known. Speaking of Pacers cards, I want to spend a little time talking about the types of cards that made this list and compare the amounts to last time. You guys have a pretty good idea what my collecting pyramid is comprised of. Pacers, Patches, NBA Finals, Hall of Famers, Top 75 guys, those sorts of things. So these numbers shouldn't be a huge surprise for you, but I enjoyed comparing them to the last list and seeing what all changed and what stayed the same. Well, 30 of the 50 cards, or 60% of them, were Pacers cards. And technically, one of those is a college card of Tyrese Halliburton, but you know what? I'm calling it a Pacers card for right now. Maybe that'll change later. I hope not. So that number 30 is up from the 24 Pacers cards I included last time. So I added six. Last time also, 32 of the 50 cards were relics. This time around, that number stayed the exact same, even though it's not all the exact same relics. So uh, I didn't do that on purpose, but I had 32 then. I have 32 now. The number of autographs stayed the same as well. So I had 11 on that list. I had 11 now. And then, of course, some had both a relic, and an autograph on the same card. I think it's unlikely that those numbers start to move more toward the middle. I've always been a big relic guy, so to see the amount of relics at three times the amount of autos, that's not really a surprise. And the only thing that might bring them closer is if I focus more on relic auto combos, which I wouldn't rule it out. I'm a lot more receptive to those than I used to be. Okay, 
Continuing on, 27 of the 50 cards were top 75 guys, uh, which, you know, seems like a lot, but 10 of those were Reggie Miller cards, which is up from the five the last time around. And hey, I'm not mad about that. He was my favorite player growing up, and he's the most decorated NBA player from my favorite franchise, despite never winning a title. And I feel like my Reggie collection has leveled up quite a bit over the last year, including a pair of unlicensed cards. And there were zero unlicensed cards on the first version of that list. So when I broke the numbers down by manufacturer, I had 19, this was the first time around, mind you, I had 19 Panini cards, 18 tops, seven upper deck, and six Fleer. This time around, the numbers were pretty similar. I had 20 Panini cards, so I added one there. I had 15 tops, so we dropped three. Seven upper deck, that was the same. Six Fleer, that was the same. Uh, and that includes the only insert on the list once again, which is that Ron Artest Hot Hands insert. And then two unlicensed cards compared to zero last time. So like I said, tops lost a few spots. Uh, and that surprised me a little because I've always considered myself to be more of a tops guy. But at the same time, they haven't made licensed NBA cards in almost a decade and a half. So there's not as much stuff to chase after for my guys. Okay, let's close this one out here. So You've seen these lists on social media before. Uh, you know, a lot of people have done their favorite or their top cards list or whatever. I've seen people run polls asking if they should go through with the exercise as well. I think they might be worried that people are going to be burnt out by lists because there are some lists out there that people have negative reactions to or, or they question the motives of those lists. And I'm not going to try and speculate any of that stuff. Um, I just know I enjoy making my own list. So I say go for it. If people don't want to see it, they can keep moving, right? We've all scrolled past stuff we don't want to see. Uh, but this is important. It's a really valuable exercise for collectors to try at least once, in my opinion. Number one, it gives them yet another way to enjoy their collection. Any excuse to take out a box or open up a binder and flip through it again is a good one, in my eyes. On top of that, it can help either refine or reinforce your approach to purchasing cards. You can crunch the numbers and, and see the things that you gravitate toward, right? Like I knew that I liked relics or I knew that I liked the top 75 players, but actually, you know, making that list and counting them out, I, I realized just how much that stuff appeals to me. And when there's something that, you know, when, when you're looking for cards and your favorite stuff hasn't shown up in a long time and you're tempted to veer off that path, then you know the numbers, right? So you can ask yourself, is this going to help move me forward in my collecting goals? If not, you need to think long and hard about that purchase. It doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. I buy plenty of stuff that doesn't even contend for this list, but you just need to be careful. It helps you to prioritize stuff in times where resources are limited. And then reason number three, I just think this is a lot of fun. I enjoy sharing my collection with other people and talking about the different sets and players and conversely, I enjoy when other people do the same. So I hope you enjoyed this activity today. And if you're on the fence about doing a list of your own, I say go for it. Even if you just start with a top 10 or a top 20, that can still be a lot of fun as well. All right, well, there you have it. If you want to see the actual cards that made the list, keep an eye out on my YouTube and my social media. As always, you can find me on Instagram under at Podcast or X under the handle at WaxMuseumPC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, 
rate and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the website for my affiliate links. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.